Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this podcast series, our mission is to metaphorically extract the half-eaten custard creams from the bottom of the battered old biscuit tin that is UK trade policy. And in today's episode, we revisit a part of the world that lies at the fulcrum of the post-Brexit arguments over trade and national identity, namely Northern Ireland. Part of the United Kingdom, but effectively within the EU single market, but still part of the UK's customs territory, you'd be forgiven for feeling a little confused about just how Northern Ireland fits into things these days. The problem is that if Northern Ireland remains part of the EU single market, then the EU wants to make sure that anything that enters that single market is compliant with its own rules, even if that stuff comes from Great Britain, which is part of the same country as Northern Ireland, all of which creates a very interesting problem. Unless, of course, you are one of the thousands of businesses involved in trying to move goods to and from Northern Ireland, in which case interesting is probably not the adjective you choose to use. And the stakes are particularly high, as the discussions about how to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol are being played out against the backdrop of increasing political and social volatility in Northern Ireland's loyalist communities. So what are the next steps? And more relevantly, how do we find solutions to the current problems? To address these questions, I'm joined by three guests today, all of whom have different academic, professional and personal perspectives on the Northern Ireland trade question. I'm joined by Michael Gassierek, Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex and Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm also delighted to welcome Katie Hayward, Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast and Senior Fellow in the UK in a Changing Europe think tank. And a big welcome also to Aidan Connolly, Director of the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium and International Trade Advisor to the British Retail Consortium. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. So, Michael Gassurek, a quick recap. What is the Northern Ireland Protocol and what exactly does it aim to do? So, the Northern Ireland Protocol was designed to ensure that there would be no border, no border checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So, first, and just to make it clear to those listening, the United Kingdom is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and Great Britain is Scotland, Wales, and England. So, Northern Ireland is separate from Great Britain. Think of a good being exported from Great Britain to the EU. Before Brexit, a good produced in Birmingham could just be shipped to the EU. If you could sell it in the UK, you could sell it anywhere in the EU. That's the single market. Now that the UK has left the EU, the same good can still enter the EU market duty-free, i.e. no tariffs, but only provided it can be proved that enough of the good was produced in Britain those are the rules of origin that we hear about, providing the good meets EU regulations and providing all the right customs paperwork is in place to prove this. So it's much more complicated. But this does not apply to goods produced in Northern Ireland. Under the Northern Ireland Protocol, Northern Ireland has stayed in the EU single market. So goods produced in Northern Ireland can just be shipped to EU as before. That causes a problem. 
What's to stop a producer in Britain from shipping the goods to Northern Ireland and accessing the EU via Northern Ireland? The answer, and this goes back to your question, because this is an important part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, is to introduce checks and controls on goods going from Britain to Northern Ireland. Now, of course, many goods from Britain are just intended to be sold in Northern Ireland with no attempt to ship onto the EU. And where that's the case, in principle, you don't need those checks and controls. So those checks and controls are meant to apply only to goods at risk of onward shipment to the EU. And then there's a complicated set of rules to determine which of the goods at risk. Casey Haywood, why exactly have we been jumping through so many hoops to avoid a customs border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland? In principle, that's the obvious place to put it. Well, yes, essentially, we do know that obviously the border between the UK and Ireland includes the land border on the edge of Northern Ireland. And right at the very beginning of the Brexit process, both the UK and the EU specified that they wanted to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. And this was in part in recognition of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. And they made it a priority such that it was one of the top priorities going into the withdrawal negotiations. And this is why that particular issue occupied the negotiators for so very long. There are two issues with respect to avoiding a hard border. So one is the practicality of it. So the Irish land border has over 280 crossings, which in and of itself immediately poses a difficulty in trying to manage what's crossing it, keep track of it all, and make sure that you don't have goods crossing over that aren't meeting the criteria for doing so. So practicality was a real issue with respect to the ambition of avoiding a hard border and managing that as a customs and regulatory border. The other element is more complicated, and that is around the peace process on the island of Ireland. Um, The Good Friday Agreement was a situation which changed the relationships between Britain and Ireland and between North and South on the island of Ireland. And in effect, Ireland's membership of the EU, along with the UK, transformed a relationship such that it wasn't just around uh, peaceful cooperation between the two, but also avoiding hardening that border with respect to trade, etc. So a lot of the cooperation that we see through the Good Friday Agreement involved the growth of the all-island economy. When we talk about managing a hard border or a customs border, immediately you're talking about checks and controls and infrastructure related to that. And there was a concern that if you had a hard Irish border, that this would give rise to such infrastructure and be seen by many as a backward step. Okay. Thank you. Aidan Connolly, what formalities are there currently applied on movements of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland? And what sort of impact is that having on the businesses concerned? Okay, well, if we look at the impact first, the majority of the time what we in the business community are doing at the moment are, other than our work, is what we like to call shooting unicorns. And that is either things that don't work that are put forward as solutions or killing bad narratives. Now, at the start of the year, there was a really bad narrative. And in fact, there were two. So the first one was, everything's fine. Don't worry. Nothing at all to see here. Please move along. And that wasn't true. And then the other one was, we're all starving. In fact, the the best one I saw was a couple of weeks into the new year. And a a woman on TV was saying it was disgrace. It was empty shelves everywhere. And she was carrying about six bags of shopping at the time, which is kind of a bit of a juxtaposition there. The reality is that the average supermarket has between 40,000 and 50,000 product lines. And there was only ever a few hundred that were missing. 
And that's because of not just the protocol, but you have to remember EU to GB was stopped for nine days because of COVID. And that had a knock on because there were ingredients coming as well. So ready meals and things like that actually took longer, as well as that you had the time of year. So it's not unheard of that we have shortages of certain things at that time of year. We're completely out of our growing season here. So about 90% of lettuce, 85% of tomatoes, about 65% of all soft fruit and veg would come from the EU anyway at that time of year. So really, it wasn't as bad as as people made out. But there have been challenges. And I think, you know, both of those narratives on different ends of the spectrum really do a disservice to the people in retail and manufacturing and logistics who work really hard to get that moving. Now, what we had on the 1st of January was new computer systems come in. In fact, before those come in, and usually in business, if we were doing that, we would phase them in over maybe a year, 18 months, but they all came in at once. In fact, the regulations on parcels came in a whole 13 hours before the deadline. You have to remember, you know, this is one thing that politicians don't get. Business is not like a light switch. It needs time to adapt. So even with the parcels thing, you need the person who's taking the order or the computer system is taking the order, the person who's packing the order, the person who's shipping the order and the person who is delivering the order all need to know what the new regulations are and what they have to do to make sure that it's all legal and above board. So we had all these customs codes to input, 50,000 you know, for, for supermarket and everybody else as well. But other than that, there wasn't a huge amount on day one. On the 22nd of February, however, we had export health certificates that were needed for products of animal origin that are on the PNR list. That's prohibited and restricted list. That's chilled meats, things like burgers and chicken nuggets and things that are chilled raw and would move across. And then, as well as that, we have also had stamnies to do. Stamnies are a self-attestation that is in place of a regular export health certificate. The difference is export health certificates have to be signed off by a vet and are very costly. Stamnies don't. And that's one godsend that we had. However, we are facing down the barrel of uh, two deadlines that are coming up. The first one is when the PNR list ends, because the EU doesn't let those chilled meats come into any part of it from any other third country. And that we're looking at on the 1st of July, though the UK has gone cap in hand, and rightly so, to the EU to ask for an extension. And then we have the 1st of October, where all products of an animal origin will need an export health certificate. All plant matter will need a phytosanitary certificate. You also need VIN certificates for wine, and you will need organic certificates as well. And the big thing about this, to put it in a nutshell, is that where you have paperwork, it is friction. Friction equals cost. And the reason that we've been fighting so hard about this is that the Northern Ireland consumer has half the discretionary income of Great British consumers. That means that they can't afford these cost rises. So a lot of work to do in a very short space of time. Okay. So we've mentioned about chilled meats there. And of course, the media has has loved this whole kind of sausage wars narrative. And we should explain that at the time of recording this podcast, we were still waiting to hear what the facilitations there might be. But Michael, why exactly is it that a British sausage, which can be legally sold in Northern Ireland on the 30th of June, should become suddenly illegal on the 1st of July? It seems a little bit absurd. What's the sort of the thought process behind that sudden shift? 
EU rules are EU food safety regulations only allow frozen meats to enter the single market. And the EU prohibits the import of chilled meat products. So it's not that Northern Ireland is being discriminated against here. It's because the United Kingdom has left the EU and therefore the United Kingdom is no longer entitled to export chilled meat products to the EU. And because Northern Ireland has remained within the single market, that applies to Northern Ireland. And Katie, there are different views, aren't there, about how these agri-food problems could be resolved. Both the European Commission and the British government have said that this could be resolved very easily with the application of a bit of common sense. Is that your interpretation of the current situation? I mean, certainly, I think what's been exposed even in the past six months has been the idea of common sense on the EU side and the UK side actually differs quite considerably. I mean, for the EU, it would be advocating for alignment from the UK side. It's basically saying if you commit to following our rules with respect to animal um, and plant health and safety, then we will be enabling ourselves to let your products in, including not just into Northern Ireland from GB, but also into the EU. Let's remember this is an issue for the UK as a whole. And as the EU has expressed, remove the need for 80% of the checks and controls on goods moving from GB into INI. But it does require a commitment there from the UK to align with the EU's rules in that respect. The UK does not want to do that. It's asking for something rather different from that, equivalence, basically for the EU to recognise the UK's rules as meeting the equivalent standards of the EU, and that doesn't have with it the need to dynamically align to the EU's rules. So this would enable the UK to feel that it is retaining sovereignty. More particularly, the UK is very concerned that it wants to have the ability to diverge from the EU's rules in certain matters, for example, in the use of certain pesticides or in the use of GMOs, for example. It also wants to retain its own ability to set its standards in these areas because it's thinking about future trade deals. Now, the EU has said, we can adjust this agreement, we can make it particular to you so that we could have a sort of a guillotine clause. If such an FTA that you agree means that you're no longer aligning to the EU's rules, but that's not yet been accepted by the UK. It's an extremely complicated matter technically, but it's also a matter that gets to the heart of the principles of the Brexit process itself. If I can just come in on that, I completely agree with everything that Katie has said. I mean, it seems to me this really does strike at the heart of the sovereignty issues here. So there are practical solutions. There are ways forward. The EU, for example, has a veterinary agreement with Switzerland, which sees the removal largely of all border checks and declarations for food entering into the EU from Switzerland. So there are practical solutions, but they strike at the heart of the issues of sovereignty because that requires the UK to align to EU standards, which it doesn't wish to do. Aidan, you get the impression that if London and Brussels were the best of friends at the moment. There could be solutions to this, but you've got the situation where the European Commission currently has legal action pending against the UK because of failure as the EU sees it to implement the provisions of the Northern Ireland Protocol earlier this year. David Frost, the UK negotiator on the Northern Ireland question, has accused the EU of legal purism in the way that it's going about its business. Do you think perhaps they both have a point? 
I suppose as far as business is concerned, there's an awful lot of handbags at dawn going on. And to be honest, you know, this whole diplomacy by opinion piece leaves us a bit disappointed, really. I think the most frustrating thing for business in this is that we can see solutions. They're they're in front of us. We can almost touch them. And this is where the real problem is. Like last year, we had the transition period only... It wasn't a transition period, but it sounds a lot better than the protracted negotiation period, which is what it really was. And for us, we wanted a technical conversation last year. And what we got was a political conversation. This year, we want a technical conversation. And what we get? A political conversation. And that's really where the problems in this lie. So if you look at what business is looking for, which is four things. The first one is uh, stability, and that comes from an immediate extension of the grace period. To give us breathing space, please. Now, that's been asked for. It was given unilaterally on, on some things. Actually, while we didn't agree with how it was done, we agreed with the substance because 1st of April, we would have had major problems. And whenever this was, that decision was taken, two days later, some of the major supermarkets were going to have to take decisions that would have definitely affected cost and availability of goods in, in Northern Ireland. The next thing we need is certainty, and that's a long-term solution delivered with business, not to business. And for that, brings us on the next one, which is simplicity. And that simplicity starts as a sliding scale. And way down at the bottom, we here we have uh, digitization of everything. And DEFRA are working on a digital assistance scheme at the minute. However, all that's going to do is save a few trees, unless we use it as an evidence base to get that trusted trader scheme, auditable and certified supply chain that we were talking about. But there are other solutions as well. And that veterinary agreement that was mentioned earlier on is hugely important and could not just help us, but it could help the government deliver some of its other aims. So it's two big things that it wants at the minute are big, best-in-class, showy trade deals with new parts of the world. And it also wants to secure the union. Right, So there's a way of doing that where you could actually do both, and that's to have a veterinary agreement with a guillotine clause on it. That means that whenever they get these wonderful new SPS-led agreements with America or with Australia, which is an agreement in principle, not that full trade deal at the moment, until that comes in, then we can continue with the EU standards. And that gives us a breathing space to deliver that trusted trader scheme. But not only does it help Northern Ireland, it helps secure the union because suddenly Scottish fishermen have access to the EU market again, whilst lamb farmers have access to the EU market again. And shoppers across the UK have a good, easy flow of goods from EU to GB, removing friction and therefore removing cost. So this all seems really common sense, but this is where ideology meets economics and both being two immovable objects. And that's really, again, it all boils down to the solutions are there. There are technical solutions that work to facilitate trade. The political will isn't. Okay, let's get controversial here. There is a school of thought which says that the problems that we're currently facing are the inevitable consequences of the original deal signed by Boris Johnson in 2019, which led to the conclusion of the EU-UK withdrawal agreement, of which the Northern Ireland Protocol is part. There are others who say the problem is really due to the fact that the European Commission is being legalistic and pig-headed and is trying to punish the UK for having been so audacious as to leave the EU in the first place. I'm wondering where you all stand on the spectrum between these contrasting views. 
I think here it's worth distinguishing between issues and problems. So do I subscribe to the view that these problems are an inevitable consequence of the deal? Well, let me go back to that distinction. I think the issues that we've been discussing here are a consequence of the deal signed both by Boris Johnson and the EU. So in a sense, the way the question is phrased is as if it is Boris Johnson's fault for signing up to the deal. You could pitch it that way, but actually it's both parties that signed up to the deal, the British government, Boris Johnson, and the EU, and both sides have a responsibility here. So the issues arise because of the complications of Northern Ireland, of needing to stay in the single market to maintain the oil economy of Ireland and Northern Ireland, while remaining also with the United Kingdom, of course. So the problems arise because of the tensions between the UK and the EU. So the issues are turning into problems because of those tensions. And those tensions arise from the EU's insistence on maintaining the integrity of the single market and its concerns about the trustworthiness of the British government, the UK government. And on the UK side, with the UK's insistence on sovereignty, waving the flag, and acting unilaterally, for example, by extending the grace period unilaterally, which doesn't help its relations with the EU because the EU sees the UK as being untrustworthy. Yeah, I think Michael's put it brilliantly there. I mean, we'll remember at the beginning of the Brexit negotiations themselves that the EU talked about finding flexible and imaginative solutions with respect to Northern Ireland, because as you mentioned at the start, Chris, it is at the fulcrum of the UK-EU new relationship, for better or for worse. Now, that flexibility, as the EU saw it, was in coming up with and allowing that protocol to begin with, because it is an extraordinary arrangement. Um, The UK is responsible for enforcing the EU's external economic border. I mean, it is remarkable. And the Northern Ireland is in the UK's customs territory, but the EU's customs rules are applying. So it's a complicated arrangement. But that flexibility actually still needs to be shown in this respect. So we have it written into the protocol in terms of the decision-making capacity that the UK-EU Joint Committee have, which is quite considerable. And they can continue to show some, to make adjustments to the operation of the protocol. But as Michael points to, where you want flexibility, you have to be able to trust the other side. And we know this in Northern Ireland in particular, you know, we're used to negotiations here. What's made things work in the past has been the trust that's existed between the British and Irish governments in the first instance. This is why it's particularly worrying at this moment, because not only do we have a lack of trust between the UK and the EU, they're also moving in opposite directions. And they're also, at the moment, exaggerating the risk of conflict between themselves over it. So even the language like sausage wars or retaliatory measures, this increases the sense that of sort of doom and gloom and Armageddon over what might be decided. And it's, I really like Michael's framing of it. We need to bring it back down to issues, as Aidan outlines very clearly. There are practical matters to be addressed here, and the protocol through the institutions of it, the Joint Committee, the Specialised Committee, can find ways of adjustment. It will require flexibility on both sides, both the UK and the EU will need to to continue to show flexibility, recognising the distinctiveness of Northern Ireland, first and foremost. And Aidan, part of the Northern Ireland protocol language talks about the need to deliver as much certainty as possible and as little disruption as possible for people in Northern Ireland. 
And of course, this is a very sensitive issue, given that the issues surrounding the two different communities in Northern Ireland. And there is a lot of concern as we go into the summer and the various sort of historical anniversaries which are coming up. To what extent do you think that the Northern Ireland Protocol has affected the sense of identity of the Northern Irish people more generally? It goes back to the Good Friday Agreement. The best thing about the Good Friday Agreement is that I could be Irish or British or Northern Irish or any mixture of the above. And actually, identity politics had moved on. There were still skirmishes and and annoyances during the summer months and, and things flared up. But by and by... People were a lot happier here. We were seeing foreign direct investment come in. We were in the headlines for all the right reasons rather than all the wrong reasons. And, you know, it wasn't any sort of Narnia or utopia, but it was it was good. But what Brexit did very quickly in Northern Ireland was it picked the scab and it became an orange and green issue. And that really undermined a lot of the peace and it also undermined part of the prosperity as well because one you had economic uncertainty and secondly because of the economic shocks that we saw before during and after and even the money that had to be spent getting ready for the three brexit dates that didn't happen it really put a lot of pressure on jobs here there's you know people were really worried and, and continue to be worried financially. And if you look at our footfall here in Northern Ireland, we are a lot, because we have half of the discretionary income of Great British households, we are a lot more reactive to negative stimuli. And anything, should it be 400 jobs being made redundant somewhere, that has a real effect through the supply chain for the people who work there, their families, their extended families, and they just don't spend the same way. And this is the biggest economic shock of, of all. Bring it back to identity politics, though, we're still in a kind of unhelpful political dynamic at the minute where we in the business community have had to step up. Remember, whenever all this started, we didn't have an assembly. That was the biggest tragedy of all this. We were reliant on Westminster committees asking questions that uh, Stormont committees should have been asking. But the political dynamic here is politicians are talking to business and they're finding out information. And then they're using that information to beat up the other side rather than using it constructively to try and gain ground and find a landing zone for this stuff, which is hugely frustrating for us. No, Brexit was always going to come with costs. Brexit was always going to come with economic change. And when there's economic change, there's uncertainty, it hurts investment, and it also hurts current jobs. So we have to get people to be realistic. There are problems and challenges at the minute. There are solutions out there. We need to work together to get those solutions. And then we can look at those opportunities. But the big thing is, if you look at the political instability that we have here, the research that came out last year about the pull factors and push factors for uh, FDI, you've got skills, wages, standard of living, but way, way up at the top is political stability. And it's not just now. There's decisions that are being made now that will affect 18, 24 and 36 months ahead of us. And we're losing out. The longer this instability goes on, the more we're going to lose out. So we've looked at a wide range of issues and problems relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol and all of the various dimensions of it. Just as we start to wrap our podcast up today... I'd just like to ask each of you really what you think needs to happen in order to get a workable and sustainable solution to these questions, which is something that we have been discussing. 
But I'd also like to know how likely you think it is, based on current trajectories, that that will in fact happen. Michael, what's your view? I'm reasonably optimistic. I can't see, on the one hand, the UK government signing up to a Swiss-style veterinary agreement. I can't see the EU agreeing to a UK-wide equivalence regime. But I think there's a very, very strong case to be made that the situation of Northern Ireland is highly specific and unusual and does require bespoke solutions and flexibility on both sides. That probably means some form of intermediate sort of regime, if you like, some sort of Northern Ireland-specific equivalence regime, possibly with a guillotine or a review period and so on, so subject to checks and review, and it will require good faith on the UK side and on the EU side, and it will complicate things for the UK in terms of future free trade agreements, what it might want to sign up to and things it might want to agree to, for example, with the United States, but I think there is a route forward. However, so while I'm optimistic that I think we will find a solution, and I think the mood music is that both sides are sort of being a little bit more cooperative. So in this case, for example, with regard to chilled meats, the UK government announced that it's going to do an extension for grace period. It's asked for an extension, and that's probably a positive sign. However, I have two concerns. One is specifically that all those solutions that I think we will probably have to the Northern Ireland Protocol are probably going to work well for the larger businesses, but may not work well for small and medium-sized enterprises. They're the ones that are probably going to struggle the most. And my second concern for Northern Ireland businesses and the economy is not to do with the protocol itself, but more to do with other aspects of Brexit, which I think may also have profound impacts on the economy. Things like access to skilled workers and migrant workers from the EU and the difficulties that engenders for businesses in Northern Ireland and for future investment. Aidan, do you see momentum for a Northern Ireland-specific solution to the various problems that we've been talking about? This is where we have to remember that the EU and the UK did commit in the preamble to delivering this with as least disruption to Northern Ireland communities as possible, and that has not happened. I think, though, we are in a different sort of framework than we were during the Barnier time. And people in the UK were saying, especially in GB, they were saying that, you know, it's so hard and they won't move. The Barnier time was actually an anomaly in the fact that they were moving more than, than perhaps they had. You've got to remember that we have a very myopic view of Brexit. It's about the UK. It's not for the EU. It's about every other border. And the fact that the if we give anything to, or if the EU give anything to the UK, you've got Ukraine who's looking uh, stuff on, on VAT and, and excise, and because of that, Ukraine-Poland border. Norway is looking, Turkey's in a customs union, not the customs union. They're looking for things as well. So there's very protections. The other big difference now is that during the Barnier time, there was a mandate. And what happened then was that he went and negotiated and came back with two or three proposals, put them to the member states, and then came back with a definitive answer. Voila, there is no mandate at the moment. Shevchevich is working within the confines of the protocol and the joint committee. And as well as that, you've got the external politics of member states, but the internal politics of member states, if you look at Macron, for example, wants to be seen as the hard man of Europe because he's got an election to fight. And you could see him hardening overnight whenever that opinion poll put Le Pen on 46% and him on 54%. So there's lots of different dynamics here that we didn't have during the negotiation phase. That said, I'm still optimistic. 
I have to be in my business in Northern Ireland. It's, it's the only way to be. Uh, there's an old saying here, if we're not in the middle of crisis, wait 10 minutes. So it's kind of thing that we will continue to, to deal with with a bit of pragmatism. But the, again, the big frustrating things for us is the fact that there are solutions. What we don't have is political will. What we'll continue to do is to push our politicians in the EU and, and in the UK. Katie, do you share that uh, cautious optimism? Yes, like Aidan. I mean, you always try and see the bright side of things. Although having said that, there is a risk at the moment of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory here. I mean, we should bear in mind businesses in Britain would give their eye teeth for access to the single market the way that businesses in Northern Ireland have now. So Northern Ireland does have a unique opportunity to obviously the unfettered access into GB and into the single market to build on. But the concerns around GB2NI movement very much dominate the situation at the moment, not just for economic reasons, but also the political ones as well. And I think we do need to see, I think it's difficult to think longer term. And we've lived with uncertainty for a very long period of time now, almost since the Brexit referendum. It would be good to see movement on the points that Michael and Aidan have raised, both with respect to agreeing together to extend that grace period on chilled meats, making some joint announcements on what they have agreed on or about to agree on, some of those very, you know, small matters that have considerable effect in public opinion, for example, the movement of guide dogs between Britain and Northern Ireland and medicines. Some joint announcements would make a big difference in just calming matters, at least over the coming weeks. And then hopefully we can get onto a slightly better keel when it comes to those bigger decisions, such as Michael was outlining there with respect to the veterinary agreement. One day we will have this four and a half hour podcast that Aidan mentioned in which we can do full justice to this vast topic. But for now, we have to leave it there. So many thanks indeed to my guests, to Michael Gasurek, to Katie Hayward and to Aidan Connolly. Thank you all. And as always, of course, thanks to all of you for listening in. So please do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.